0: Good evening. If anyone is new, my name is Chris Luke and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I'll be teaching this week and next. Uh, Dr. Young and the crew in Israel are doing very well from what I understand, having a great trip. So turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7 and as you're turning I'll give you a brief introduction to our passage. Daniel 7 begins the second half of the book of Daniel. The first half is the part that we are more familiar with, uh, where we find stories of Daniel and his friends being taken captive to Babylon, also the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as well as uh, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall And uh, all of that in the action-packed first half of the book of Daniel. The second half gets pretty wild in a different sort of way. It has some wild visions and images, what is known as apocalyptic literature, which we will talk more about as we get going. First, let us read Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it, broke in, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Just a little light reading Everybody understands that, right? We don't really need to go on. So, as I mentioned before, uh, Daniel 7 begins the second half of the book, and it seems that it serves as a link between the two halves, because in verse 1, we see that it harkens back to what has gone before. It mentions the reign of Belshazzar. He was overthrown at the end of chapter 5, and we switch from Belshazzar to King Darius Uh, but chapter 7 is taking us back there, linking us to the first half. But we are also introduced here to some apocalyptic literature, which is prevalent throughout the second half, linking us in that direction as well. So what is apocalyptic literature anyway? Isn't that like zombies and aliens or dragons in the end of the world? Well... Sometimes it involves the end of the world, but uh, not necessarily. Here is a good definition from a seminary professor at my seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, a man named Dale Ralph Davis. He says, roughly I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people who are despised and discouraged and cast off by the world. It's a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people who are despised and discouraged and cast off by the world. And the encouragement is with a vision of God who will come to impose His kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And that comes through wild and scary and imaginative, bizarre imagery. So it's very important as we keep this in mind, as we study this chapter, as well as when we study other apocalyptic passages like in Ezekiel or Revelation. Many people get lost in the imagery. But we have to remember the main point of apocalyptic imagery. It is seeking to enlighten and encourage God's people who are in a position of being despised and discouraged and cast off by the world. And what is the encouragement that comes? It is a vision of God who will come to impose His kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. So here in Daniel, God's people are in a tough place. They are in exile in Babylon. Their homeland has been conquered by an enemy nation. They are captive in that enemy nation. And we might excuse them for wondering, Well, maybe God has forgotten us. But God gives Daniel a message, an apocalyptic message, to give them more understanding about what is going on at the moment and what is going to happen in the future. And while some aspects of this vision are terrifying for God's people, it is ultimately a very hopeful vision for God's people. And brothers and sisters, we too are in a difficult place. We're heading to a difficult place. Not as tough as Daniel, but tough. The church in our country is increasingly being moved into a sort of exile. We are in a nation that worships false gods just like it was so in Babylon. There may come a day when we will likewise be tempted to think, maybe God has forgotten us. But my hope and prayer is that our Father in Heaven would use this vision of Himself to strengthen us for the road ahead. So let us pray to that end. Our Father, it is our prayer that You would meet us here. That You would calm our fears and anxieties and uh, whatever clutters our minds and That you would focus our minds and hearts on you. That you would meet us here. That you would take your word. That you would minister it to your people. That you would plant it in our hearts and that would grow good crops that bear good fruit to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Three main points I want us to see in our passage tonight the backdrop, God's sovereignty and characteristics of God's sovereignty. So let's start with trying to understand the backdrop of the passage, beginning with the vision in verses 2 and 3. The four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. Now, remember, this is imagery, so what are these images representing? Well, the consensus among many resources that I consulted on this passage, point to the fact that the great sea is imagery for this present world in sin. We are given a clue about this when we get the interpretation of the image in verse 17, the interpretation of the vision. Verse 17 tells us that the four beasts out of the sea represent four kings on the earth. So the sea is imagery for this present world. And particularly, it is imagery for this world in all of its chaos and disorder in sin. Imagery for rebellion against God. One commentator notes that the great sea is a picture of the world in its godlessness and instability. So the four kings are four rulers who... Uh, whose reigns are marked by godlessness and chaos. They are marked by rebellion against God. All right? So who are the beasts? Who are these evil rulers? Well, there has been much speculation about all kinds of people. Uh, Stalin and Hitler probably rank up there as most often suggested. But I would submit to you that it really doesn't matter. Uh, I may talk a bit more about the rulers in a minute, but I say that it doesn't matter on the front end because the main point of the passage is not about the rulers at all. And and I'm tempted just to skip over it and throw it out, though I'm not going to do that to you. But people tend to get fascinated by the beasts and tend to want to speculate about who they are, but remember the main point of apocalyptic, seeking to enlighten and encourage God's people who are in a dark place, and what is the encouragement that comes? It's not understanding about the beast. It's a vision of God. A vision of God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. The main point is God. The significance of the beast is simply to provide a backdrop, a background context of the godlessness and instability with which God is to work. But the main point is about what God does in that context. What God does in this present darkness. Many of you will remember Les Newsom's little series on Revelation about a year and a half ago um, on Sunday mornings. I thought it was a great series, and I think... Uh, The reason is because he took our focus off the periphery and focused it back on the Lord, the central point of the text. And in a sense, he gave us revelation back. You know, we're kind of scared of revelation because we don't know what to do with all those visions and all those beasts and everything. But he said, no, no, no. Don't worry about that. Just look at the point is about God. And he got a standing ovation when he was done. Uh, We love less here, but I think more because we heard Revelation four or five times and we're like, well, I think I understood that. And it was downright encouraging. That's the point of apocalyptic, that God's people would be encouraged with a vision of God. All right, about the kingdoms, I believe that the four kingdoms are the same four kingdoms that are mentioned in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Uh, four consecutive world powers that start in the time of Daniel. This would be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that would make sense even given with the imagery here in the first few verses. For example, the third kingdom mentioned in verse 6. It was like a leopard with four wings and dominion was given to it. The third kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was Greece. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Greece was led by Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in ten years, like a leopard. It was fast. And dominion was given to it, dominion. It was an expansive conquest. So there's good argument for who the kings are and who the kingdoms are. Though it gets a little trickier when you get to the fourth. A lot of commentators agree that it was Rome, but then all the talk about the ten horns and what do you do with the ten horns. And, uh, you know, there's this little horn, and that's even more devastating for the people of God. Some say the ten horns were the ten uh, evil rulers in Rome. There were ten major waves of persecution under Rome in the early Christian church. Some people think that that's what that was talking about. Others say, no, ten is more symbolic like a number of completion, and just points to the total dominance of Rome and the the persecution that that entailed. And then there's a lot of disagreement about that last little horn. Was it a wicked ruler in the first or second century or soon after, or is it an Antichrist figure that's still in the future that we have not seen yet? I don't know, and I really don't think it matters. Either way, it does not change the major point of the text, because all of these kingdoms and all of these horns are pointing us, if they're pointing us to godless kingdoms of the past, which is what I lean towards, we still know that it serves as a sort of paradigm because there have been kingdoms and rulers like that since then, haven't there? Like Stalin's USSR and Hitler's Germany. We know that there are also nations like this now, and there will be nations like this in the future, in rebellion against God, destructive forces in the world, oppressing and persecuting God's people. And if some of this is pointing to evil rulers that are still yet to come, well, we know that they will be in rebellion against God, destructive forces in the world, oppressing and persecuting God's people. Either way, we arrive at the same conclusion, and I know, you know, many get fascinated by these apocalyptic images, but we do ourselves a disservice to be overly concerned about the specifics and miss the point. There are general details that are clear enough they give us a necessary backdrop, the context that we're supposed to understand, which is simply darkness, rebellion, wickedness the kingdoms of the earth in rebellion against God having a devastating influence in the world especially for the people of God but against that backdrop the main thrust of the text is not about the beasts it's about God specifically the main point of this portion of chapter 7 that we are studying is about God's sovereignty so that's the second point I want us to consider tonight God's sovereignty. Now, what is God's sovereignty? Uh, That's a big word that we use a lot around here, and we shouldn't expect that everyone, we shouldn't take it for granted and expect that everyone knows what it means. Uh, God's sovereignty refers to his absolute power and complete control over everything, both good and evil. God's sovereignty is His absolute power and complete control over everything, both good and evil. The Lord rules over everyone and everything. He has absolute power and He is in complete control over all. Even when things seem out of control, God is in complete control. God's sovereignty is a thread that runs through the entire chapter. Look back at verse 2. I saw in my vision the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. We've talked about the fact that the great sea is imagery for the godlessness and disorder of this world in sin. But the four winds of heaven is imagery that is pointing us to God's sovereignty. This type of language is used in other prophecies like Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, the breath. There's also a hint in our passage. It is called the four winds of heaven, which of course is where God's throne is. So what is this vision telling us? The four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea well we know what it is not saying it's not saying that God is the author of sin God is not the author of sin sin is mankind's responsibility but it is showing that God is sovereign over everything including the sinful rebellion of this world the four winds of heaven stir the sea God is in complete control even when things seem out of control. The Lord knows exactly how to stir the godlessness and sinfulness of this world in order to govern it toward His perfect ends. This is hinted at in verse 2 as well as verse 6, which is about the ruler like a leopard and dominion was given to him. Okay, so... Alexander the Great may have conquered the world in short order, and he did, like a leopard. But you know what? His dominion was given to him. By who? By the only one that can give dominion. By the sovereign ruler over all things. And you know, that is the case for any ruler anywhere, right? No one is ruling apart from God's appointment. And that may do some things to us, and we may wonder how in the world and why in the world God would do that, but then we go back and we say, but God knows how to stir the sea. He knows exactly how to govern all of this wickedness toward his perfect ends. God was sovereign over Alexander's conquest of the world, knowing exactly how to stir it toward his perfect ends. For bonus points, can anyone think of an example of how we see this with Alexander? Shout it out. It's a language. The Greek language. He was the leader of Greece and Greek language. Um... This is a great example. The fact that one of the things that Alexander was determined to do was to spread the Greek culture, including the Greek language, to the ends of the earth. And that was Koine Greek, which was common man's Greek. Now, Alexander wanted to do this in order to spread his power and his glory and the glory of his kingdom. But God knows how to stir all of the godless rulers of this world for his own perfect purposes. God was governing Alexander's conquest towards his own ends. Because just a couple few hundred years after Alexander, guess who came? Jesus. Then Jesus dies and he rises and he goes back to heaven. He has accomplished our salvation and he commissions his disciples to go on the power of the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation to the ends of the earth, to go and make disciples everywhere. And you know one of the reasons they were able to do that so fluidly in the early years, a lot of people talk about the Roman roads because the Romans had built roads for their conquest. It's another example. But another reason was the Greek language. Koine Greek, common man's Greek. Everywhere they went, everybody spoke it. Now, Alexander was not thinking about that. He was thinking about his own power and his own glory. And you know what? His glory had long faded by the time Jesus came. Rome, Greek, Greece was old news. Rome had taken over and they were way better than Greece ever was. But the Greek language remained because God knows how to stir the wickedness of this world for his perfect purposes. And the Greek language was instrumental in the advance of the gospel in the early centuries of the church. So, God's sovereignty is hinted at in the, uh, early in the chapter with this image of the four winds stirring the sea, but I want us to look more closely now at certain characteristics of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 9 and following. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is a name for God. The picture is that God is sovereign on his throne, and it says he is seated on the throne because while the godlessness, the godless kings of this world rule in chaos and disorder and instability, God is steady and stable in his sovereignty. And not only is God's sovereignty stable where theirs is unstable, but it is also pure where theirs is impure, wise where theirs is foolish, And God's sovereign rule is just where theirs is unjust. We see this developed as verse 9 continues. In this vision that Daniel received, God's clothing was white as snow. This is imagery for purity. God rules over all things, not only with absolute power, but also in perfect purity, with perfect righteousness. So, while we may struggle with some of the workings out of God's sovereignty here on earth, we come back to remember God is righteous and pure in all that He does. He is stirring the pot with a whole lot of unrighteousness in it. But remind yourself again and again our God is pure, He is righteous in His sovereignty. So his clothing was white as snow. His head was like pure wool. So white or gray hair, what does that stand for? Wisdom, amen? (laughs) And not just wisdom, pure wisdom. God is pure in His sovereign rule. God is wise in His sovereign rule. And we also see that God is just in His sovereignty. Verse 9, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels of burning fire. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. What is fire a symbol for? Judgment. Verse 10 continues, the courts sat in judgment and the books were opened. So we see that the Lord is the judge and he is just and right and wise in his judgment. And we also see here in verses 11 and verse 12 that the wicked are destroyed in God's time. So look at that with me. Verse 11, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So how long is a season and a time? It doesn't matter. I have no idea. That's not the point of the text. The point is, God is the judge. In verse 11, one unjust ruler was killed swiftly. But as for the rest, in verse 12, we see that God permitted them to carry on for some time. Though he eventually rendered them powerless, it says their dominion was taken away. Their lives were prolonged for God's purposes until God said it was time for their lives to be over. And then he judged them in perfect purity, with perfect wisdom, and perfect justice. So what we see here is that sometimes God's justice is on display in short order. And that's really what we all want, right? I mean, we would like for all of the wicked to stop prospering now. For all of the wrong to be righted today. Yesterday would be better. However, according to God's perfect wisdom, He sometimes allows the wicked to carry on. But make no mistake, He will judge them justly. Everyone will have their time before the throne of God. Now, I want you to imagine the comfort that this was to Daniel. As he was stuck under unjust rulers in exile... In Babylon. And don't forget. He is getting this vision. During Belshazzar's reign. This is before. He goes into the lion's den. So God is encouraging. And strengthening. His displaced. And discouraged son. By letting him know. That he is sovereign. Over all of the wicked affairs. Of this wicked kingdom. That he is enslaved to. And that all things will be right in the end. And yet, he was going to have to believe that message in the darkness. In the lion's den. This would be the message that was fresh in Daniel's mind when he went in. My God can be trusted. My God is sovereign. He's in complete control. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to stir the darkness toward his perfect ends. And we too must cling to these truths in our day. When godless, wicked rulers abound, do not forget that God knows exactly how to stir this pot, just as He did in Daniel's day for His greatest glory and our greatest good. When all seems out of control, whether it is the Christian church getting pushed more to the margins of our society Or, heaven forbid, there come a day in our nation, which I don't think is too far-fetched, where Christians are imprisoned and even killed for their faith in this land. We cannot forget that God is in control. Do not forget that He is wise and pure in His governance of all things, and that His justice will prevail in the end. And not only should we cling to these truths on a macro scale, like thinking about nations and kingdoms, but also on a micro scale in thinking about the details of our lives. Trusting that God is wise and pure and just in his sovereignty, he knows exactly what he's doing, he's in complete control over everything that happens in our lives. You don't have to raise your hand. But has anyone ever found themselves in a situation where you feel like you're driving a little too fast and there's mud caked on the windshield? Like it's hard to tell up from down and down from up? Of course you have. And if you're being honest, has anyone ever wondered if God has forgotten you? Like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? Like He doesn't hear them anymore? He's not paying attention to me. He's forgotten to be sovereign in my life. You may not have said it that way, but you've thought that. Like Kyle taught us last week, we have to remember that God is up to something good in the divine delay. He knows how to stir the darkness of your life just right. Whether trials that He has put you through, injustice that has been done to you, or even sin that you have done and that He is exposing in your life, whatever it is, God perfectly governs the darkness of your life toward His perfect ends for His glory and for our good. Now next week we're going to talk about the the next section in this passage, which is the King and his global conquest. You know how King Jesus conquered Satan and sin and took his throne? Through death. There was a period of time where it did not seem to anyone but God that things were going as planned. No one but God thought things were going as they ought to go. Satan and his demons were celebrating. And the disciples were on the brink of despair. But oh, the wise and pure and just sovereignty of God. Because without Christ's death, there would be no global conquest. It was His death that was necessary to pay for our sins His resurrection was necessary to conquer our deaths. And God's justice, satisfied on the cross, assures us that though God's ways may not be our ways, He is righteous and wise and just in His judgments. And indeed, He is overflowing with grace and mercy. Friends, come what May, he can be trusted. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I speak for most when I say that the first time I laid eyes on Daniel 7, I probably skipped it. But you have hidden glories here that we need to hear right now tonight. Lord, for many of us, we fear a culture gone mad and our place in it. And yet we believe this word that you are sovereign and good and wise and right and just in your sovereignty and that you know exactly how to govern all of this madness toward your perfect purposes, Lord. And the fact that you have bound us up in those purposes is nothing but pure grace. And we thank you. Lord, for those who are in the midst of the darkness in their lives and they do not know up from down and down from up and they are at complete exhaustion and on the brink of despair. Would you take this good news about your sovereign power and wisdom, and justice, and mercy, and drive it deep in our hearts to support us for the days ahead. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living, and active, and true, and timeless. Thank you that you love us, and you'll never leave us, or forsake us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.